when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with author, poet, and folklorist Jenna Rose Nethercott. Let's find out about her writing process and her debut novel, Thistlefoot. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Hi, this is Jenna Rose Nethercott, the author of Thistlefoot. Can you introduce us, uh, our listeners, to uh, Thistlefoot? Yeah, absolutely. So Thistlefoot is uh, the story of Isaac and Bellatine Yaga. They are two contemporary Jewish-American siblings who have been estranged for a really long time. Isaac is a street performer and sort of a con man. And Bellatine is a woodworker. She's super practical. The two of them are very, very different. But they learn that they are going to receive this mysterious inheritance from their twice great grandmother who they never met. She passed away long before they were born and in fact never left their ancestral home in Russia, what is now Ukraine. So the two siblings put their differences aside. They come together to see what the heck could be in this gigantic shipping crate that has come in from Ukraine. And uh, when they open it, they are a little bit shocked and uh, appalled, one might say, (laughs) to discover that this inheritance just so happens to be a gigantic sentient house lofted up on a pair of chicken legs. So... If that image sounds familiar to you, it is because I stole it (laughs) from the old folklore of Baba Yaga. Uh, Baba Yaga is a Slavic and Russian folk figure, a sort of crone witch who lives in a house on chicken legs. Uh, So yeah, Thistlefoot blends Eastern European folklore, uh, Jewish history, American travel stories, and it follows Isaac and Bellatine in their journeys in this house while also slipping into the past and following the life of their twice great grandmother, who just so happens to be Baba Yaga. Uh, But in this version of the story is a Jewish woman living in a shtetl in the year 1919, uh, surrounded by the Russian Civil War, World War I, and most notably for their community, uh, the rise of pogroms, which were systematic massacres perpetrated against the Jewish people by the Russian government. So uh, yeah, that's, a, that's sort of what you need to know going in. Um, there's a lot going on, but it's all, it's all good. <laughs> it's not all good. Some of it is upsetting, but I like to blend the fun and the sad and the difficult and the spooky all in one, because I think that's life. It kind of leads into this question here is like folklore tends to kind of reflect on society. And obviously, as you're mentioning, this Thistlefoot deals with some periods of troubled history. But at the same time, it's, it's reflecting on current society as well, in a way. So, so how, I guess, how do you do you take that mirror of folklore to kind of look at the past, look at the present, look at the future kind of stuff and and meld it into a a cohesive story. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I want to preface by saying the book ended up being far more relevant than I ever could have wanted it to be. Uh, When I was writing it, it was before the troubles in Ukraine had reached this sort of fever pitch that they're at right now. And it was uh, really disturbing and uncanny to have been studying this history for the last three years and thinking of it very much as history and then seeing it playing out in the present again, uh, just in time for the book to be entering the world. So that, yeah, I don't, I don't love that. 
Um, but in terms of the folklore elements of it, that's really why I'm obsessed with folklore. That's why I write folklore or write from folklore rather, is it's amazing ability to be a mirror of ourselves and our society. Specifically, I think it can be a really, really useful tool for communities to be able to address stories and memories and experiences that may be almost, you know, too painful or too taboo to look at directly. And so instead, you're able to address these emotions, you're able to address these events and the emotional core of them, but without staring directly at them and sort of re-traumatizing ourselves, right? where we're able to use these fantastical, magical, sometimes even whimsical parallels, uh, but to talk about things that are really real. And that's what I try to do with Thistlefoot. That's what I think most folklore actually evolves to do uh, in its organic oral tradition is to be this way for us to connect uh, and to address without kind of ruining ourselves on the spikes of our experiences. Uh, and I'm, I'm really, fascinated with the difference between truth and fact. Uh, I first became really obsessed with this idea in high school when we were assigned to read The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. And he talks about, I think the way that he words it is like truth with an uppercase T versus truth with a lowercase T, this difference between emotional truth versus factual truth. And when he writes about it, it's like he'll uh, have a scene in which a fellow soldier is killed in action. And then in the following chapter, he'll be having coffee with that soldier 20 years in the future when they're both you know, older men reflecting on the war. And he says like, yeah, even though this is obviously not factual truth, it is uppercase T truth. It, it is the, the feeling of war. It is, the, it is the emotional reality that we're living in. And so that is what I try to prioritize in everything that I write. And I think that's what folklore prioritizes is the emotional truth versus the factual truth. So, yeah. And the fact that the emotional truth is, is more important often than the cold hard data of a story. It's kind of, uh, and I realize it's parody tongue in cheek kind of thing, but it's kind of like the cold very poor with Stephen Colbert and the, the truthiness of something when it felt it in his gut. Totally. Yeah. And I think that there's so many ways you can spin that, that kind of truth. You can use it for satire. You can use it for folklore. You can use it. I mean, you can also use it for ill in addition to for good, you know, like I use it for, uh, for softening things that I feel like are important to talk about to a point where it makes it easier to address and therefore maybe more possible to learn from. But of course, twisting the truth of a story, twisting the facts of a story can also be used for manipulation, can also be used for control over a people, over a past, uh, over a trauma. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a prickly thing. And it really depends on whose hands the storytelling falls into. And Thistlefoot, the character rather than the book, shares varying versions of its own tale, which parallels folklore shifts and turns and oral tradition. Thistlefoot also breaks the fourth wall as speaking directly to the reader, which made me feel almost like nostalgic, almost like you've been read a, a fairy tale out loud. How did you approach finding Thistlefoot's voice? Yeah, that's, I love that question. I've been asked it a few times because people really connect with Thistlefoot's voice. And I'm not surprised at all because that was my favorite part to write too. And I feel like a reader can always tell where the author had the most fun. Um, I love writing in Thistlefoot's voice because it's exactly what you were saying. It's this storyteller voice. It's like a gather round children and I'll tell you a tale. 
And so in these moments, you're not just looking at Thistlefoot, but Thistlefoot is looking at you. And I think there's something really fun about that, really kind of like dangerous about it in a way. Thistlefoot is not reliable. Thistlefoot is kind of a, a liar and a trickster and will care for you and, and take care of you, but also with a wink. Uh, it is a little tongue in cheek um, and it's, it's untrustworthy. And so the house itself, its voice, in a way, that's my most natural writing voice is this like storyteller, yarn spinning kind of trickster voice. So that it came really easily to me because I think it's sort of my it's my voice in a way, not my voice as Jenna, but my voice as the storyteller. But specifically in terms of finding Thistlefoot's like cultural lilt, I guess, I read a bunch of uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer's short stories. I read a bunch of Shole Melechem's short stories who wrote the Tevye the Milkman tales that uh, Fiddler on the Roof is based on. I also um, looked through these photographs from shtetls in that era and read kind of a firsthand personal oral histories of what it was like to live in these shtetls. And so, you know, in addition to Thistlefoot's regular storytelling voice, as I might have, uh, there's this kind of Yiddish folktale teller voice woven throughout it as well. That's a little more culturally Thistlefoot's versus culturally mine. It sounds like you did a ton of research for this title, just even each character having research building on it, as well as the history and the folklore history. I mean, there's both the pairing of violence and fairy tales and the pairing of violence in, in actual history as well. So a lot of research. Yeah, definitely. And what was what was really fascinating about it for me was this is my own family's uh, lineage. This is the story of my family's immigration. And so in the book, it follows a shtetl called Gerenkrovka. And that title is invented. I made up that shtetl name, but the shtetl of Gerenkrovka is a real, is a real place. Uh, it was called Rotmastrivka. And it is the shtetl where my mother's side of the family came from. And everything that happens in Gerenkrovka uh, unfortunately happened in Rotmastrivka, which was a story I did not know much at all about going in. And so the process of researching for the novel was also this process of researching my own familial history, my own lineage, and these stories that I really only knew like the smallest little surface layer of which, yeah, I talk about sometimes how interesting it was that Isaac and Bellatine, the protagonists in the novel, are learning about their history. And I was learning those same things in tandem with them because we have the same familial lineage because theirs is based on mine. Uh, so we had this kind of interesting joint process. And um, yeah, there were some really amazing resources that I was able to utilize for that research. Uh, the ones that I named, one that I found to be the most fascinating uh, book, which I highly recommend, is um, it's called Photographing the Jewish Nation, Pictures from S. on Sky's Ethnographic Expeditions. And it's just a collection of photographs from a Jewish shtetl. And I've never seen, I've never seen so many photographs so vividly rendered of this particular culture-like space and moment in history. It was so great for the research because I, I could be like, what pattern might someone have on their blouse? And I could look through these photos and see, or I could be like, what, you know, what particular images were carved onto their gravestones? And I could look through these images and see. And as an author, I like love to get that shit right. You know, it's like so satisfying 
to get these teeny, teeny, tiny little details right. And like maybe no one alive will know that they're right. But for those like couple people who do, it really matters. And I think for the authenticity of the story, it really matters. So yeah, I really, I love that stuff. It was beautifully written. Thank you so much. I want to jump back to something you said early in that answer, where you're talking about the certain parts that are like your favorite parts to write. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand in, in the in the completion of this novel, there was a chapter that was not as much fun. And I'm not going to get into oh which, one it, which one it is, but just kind of like the, the process behind it. So what was it about the chapter that had it in for you? <laughs> I, I am I allowed to swear on this podcast to tell you what I told to tell the re- listeners what I call this chapter. I say yes. Sarah always hesitates. <laughs> so uh, sorry to offend anyone who does not like spicy language. Um, I swear like a sailor, so I can't help myself. But yeah, no, I literally the the chapter in my in my word like in my folders on my computer where I had my drafts was titled this fucking chapter because I had to rewrite it so many times and it's just like I couldn't get it right it was excruciating it was like the bane of my existence and what's so absurd about this chapter is that it's like it's not an important chapter it is not one of those it wasn't like a vital chapter where I was like I have to get it right for the integrity of the story it was sort of an intermediary chapter it was really a chapter just where like some characters had to tell some other characters some information that was it and that's why it was so hard for me to write. Like the chapters that really have an important uh, like emotional underpinning were a joy to write in certain ways because I could use that emotional underpinning as fuel and because I really cared about what happened in that chapter. So it's so much easier to write something when you really care about what's going on. Uh, But yeah, this chapter was really sort of expositional. It was like, here's some information that some characters have to learn in this chapter. So how do you, how do you just tell some character something without it being boring? Like, and by tell character something, it really means also tell the reader something, right? So it's like, how do you just impart information in a way that feels organic, in a way that feels natural that the characters imparting the information would naturally bring it up and the characters hearing the information would naturally be able to receive it at that point in their development in a way that's not just like, here are some facts. Everyone look at this list of facts. And yeah, I, I just had a really hard time figuring out how to do that. I don't know why, but it was, yeah, it, it really did a number on me, this fucking chapter, man. But oh. what's great is I think that readers reading the book would not even be able to pick it out now. Eventually I got it and it's like totally a non, like it doesn't seem like a strain at this point, but when I read it, I, I can feel the suffering in it that, that went down. So, you know, what, what I, I bled for this book. <laughs> what was that final turning point for finding a way to survive it for you? What, what kind of led you to figuring out the way to do it? I never had a moment where I was like, Eureka, <laughs> you know, like sometimes with a chapter that I struggle with, there is a moment where I feel it click and it's really satisfying. And with this, it was very much a just, I combed it over enough times that I was like, well, I guess it works now. <laughs> Time to move on. <laughs> and that is sometimes what you got to do. You know, you ha- as a writer, you have those chapters where you feel this like, almost like puzzle pieces clicking into place and like you cracked some sort of code and you're like, I'm a brilliant genius. <laughs> um, and yeah, other times you're like, well, good enough. <laughs> time, to, time to do what's, whatever's next. I live my life and good enough. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So, yeah. 
A large component of Fizzlefoot is a family of traveling puppeteers focused on the brother and sister duo Isaac Bellatine. You have been traveling on your book tour with a Baba Yaga puppet and Fizzlefoot puppet. What was the practice and setup prior to your book tour like and with the live puppetry show accompaniment? And have you had any favorite performances so far? Yeah, so I am just someone who's like incapable of doing a regular book tour. I don't know what's, <laughs> there's like something going on in my psyche. I'm like, I won't do it. <laughs> I'm like, must have puppets, which, you know, <laughs> it's some sort of like puppet puppet ailment that I um, have fallen under. But yeah, so this, this ain't my first rodeo with a puppet related book tour. My last book, The Lumberjack's Dove, which was a poetry book that is in the form of a book length poem that's also based in folklore. Uh, I was on the road for eight months solid in a new city every two days. I did over a hundred readings and the whole time I was living out of the trunk of my Honda Fit and I had a little mattress on one side and on the other side I had this big puppet theater, uh, what's called a cranky. So a cranky is also what I'm touring with for Thistlefoot and for those who've never seen a cranky before, which I feel like are most folks, it's a box that has an opening in it, the way like a puppet theater would have an opening in it. And in that opening sits a scroll and that scroll has a crank on the top and you can turn the crank and it becomes this panoramic scrolling imagery. So this panorama that I was toying with for Lumberjack's Dove and that I also now have for Thistlefoot, they hold these incredible intricate cut paper scenes animating the story as I tell it. These were created by an amazing artist named Maria Pugnetti, whose uh, moniker is Wooly Mar, Wooly like a sheep, and then M-A-R. You should all look up her Instagram and her website. She's unbelievable. Also a great DJ. So, you know, <laughs> multi-talented individual. So yeah, so the Lumberjack's Dove one was a 60 foot long shadow panorama. Wild, she hand cut the entire thing. This one uh, is, there are two separate scrolls and she's adding two more to, which animate the folktale stories in the voice of Thistlefoot, the house itself. Meanwhile, I can never do anything simply. So I was like, I'm gonna have to up my game for this tour since I did just a cranky last time. And also, well, Isaac and Bellatine in the book, they have handheld rod puppets. And those rod puppets, the design of them was inspired by rod puppets that I had seen performed by a puppet theater called Sandglass Theater, which is based in the woods of Putney, Vermont. And so when it came time for me to tour, I was like, well, I have to have some of these rod puppets as well, because this is what my characters are using. This has to be part of the tour. So I actually uh, enlisted the help of Sandglass Theater to build rod puppets. So it's this chicken and the egg, no pun intended, cycle where like in the book, they were inspired by these particular artists' designs. Eric Bass is puppets specifically, who it's a family theater. And Eric is the, the one of the two founders with his wife, Inez, amazing puppeteers, and their daughter, Shoshana, who's a friend of mine, is has stepped up as the artistic director there. So I worked with Shoshi, I worked with Maria, we together combed through the text to figure out how we might bring these to life. Then Maria went off and started building the scrolls. Shoshana went off and started building this beautiful, beautiful Baba Yaga puppet, as well as this tiny little Thistlefoot house puppet. Uh, I worked with a cabinet maker named Gilbert Ruff, who built the shadow box, the puppet theater, which just so happens to be shaped like a house on chicken legs, which is really fun. 
And yeah, then I went into rehearsals. Shoshana directed the production. It was amazing working with her because I am not a puppeteer, but like Shoshana is kind of like Bellatine in the book where if she touches something, it comes alive. It's amazing. So just learning from her expertise was so, so incredible. Watching her like touch a puppet and then it is just like a living being. Uh, yeah, so we rehearsed the hell out of it. I rehearsed the scenes over and over and over again. And then finally, when they were ready, I did a big launch here in my hometown in Brattleboro, Vermont. The theater sold out. Uh, we had to turn people away at the door and I finally was able to show this piece uh, in person. So yeah, it was, it was a long process. And now I'm on the road. Uh, I'm home just for a couple days right now and I'm traveling all over the country with these <laughs> puppets in tow. Uh, yeah, performing the Thistlefoot Traveling Show. It sounds delightful. Wish I could see a live version of it. Yeah, hopefully uh, I'll, I'll be down in Florida. Uh, I'll be at the Miami Book Festival. So okay. I don't know how far you are from Miami, but really far. I think well, that's maybe 14 hours. Okay, never <laughs> Florida's mind. Florida's so big. It's a big state. Yeah, in Vermont, I'm like top to bottom. It's four hours, so mm -hmm. couldn't be further than that. But uh, yeah. So yeah, I encourage any listeners to check out my website where I have all of my tour dates listed. The, the puppets are really amazing and it's really fun and like an honor to be able to also show off the art of my friends like my friends are so talented Shoshana is literally the heiress to a puppet empire like what an amazing thing to be right and so yeah it's just really fun to to not have to like I, I tour alone you know but I I have these companions in these amazing works of art that remind me of like dear friends back home who just are such masters in their crafts and it's really really lovely I think on the plus side, if I'm not mistaken, I believe I saw a Nashville date here yes. in the mid of October. So for, for, for people in my Huntsville area, we're really close. Totally. Yeah. I'll be at uh, the Southern Festival of Books in Nashville. I'll also be uh, at the Louisiana Book Festival in Baton Rouge. I think I may have a couple other Southern dates. It's worth taking a peek. So not just being a writer, you're kind of a traveling bard in a way. Generally, when it's a writing perspective, you craft, it's released to the wild. If you seek out the, the response, you can find it, but otherwise it, it's on its own and you don't have to deal with it. You can just exist without it. But as you are a traveling bard and you're performing these in, in like a performance artist kind of thing, how does that influence you as a, uh, the interactive nature of, of, of the novel? For me, that's like the whole point of writing it, honestly. When you're writing, it's just you and your brain and this piece of work. And it's so different from performing arts where in, in the performing arts, you know, if you're a musician or an actor or a dancer or what have you, you're putting this energy out and in real time you are receiving energy back. You know, you can feel the energy from the audience. You can feel that moment of connection and you can really understand that art is about communication. It is about connection. It is about sharing something with other people. As a writer, you do not get that. You are just alone in a room and it is really isolating. For me, that's really difficult. I want to be able to feel the connection that can come from creation because, you know, language is communication. Language is about communication. If it wasn't, I would just be writing it in my journal. And, you know, the things I write in my journal, that's a very different kind of writing because that is not about connection. That is not about communication. Um, it's about processing with myself. But something like Thistlefoot, a book that is intended to go out in the world, the whole point of it is to be able to use it to connect with other people. And so 
the joy of it for me is when I'm able to then go out in the world and meet people, talk to other readers, hear people's stories about how they connect with it or what it meant to them. You know, as a reader too, like I know how amazing it feels to find a book where you see something of yourself in it. Like there are so few feelings that are that meaningful. And so then to be able to hear from people that it was able to do that for them is like, it makes me want to cry. You know, it's just, I know how much that matters and how much that means. So yeah, I love it. And you know, a lot of writers like will not read their Goodreads reviews. Um, and I think I understand that it comes from a sense of self-protection. I'm not super precious about that. Like, you know, there's plenty of books I like and plenty of books I don't like. So I don't expect everyone to like my book either. So I'm not like insulted if I see a negative review, but I, you know, I read all my Goodreads reviews because I love hearing what people experienced with the story. I love traveling and being able to use this this story that essentially was like enforced isolation for me for three years that then transforms into like almost a train ticket or something it transforms into this pair of wings that I can use to journey out into the world uh yeah so for me it's like it's really the most exciting part because obviously as, as you have a side hustle where you do uh uh, poems on demand with the with the typewriter kind of thing. You get that immediate response from a from a from a customer at that stage, but it's also I guess performing underneath pressure of a deadline that's different than than a, a more immediate deadline than what comes with a novel. So does that help you in in the overall adventure that you're taking with the the tour and, and what have you? I think poems to order work is a completely other camp, right? Where it's like if you're looking at the spectrum of like journaling on one end as being like, this is just for me. A novel like Thistlefoot is being in the middle where it's like, I wrote the story that I cared about because I wanted to write it, but also I want to share it with others. Uh, Poems to Order is on the other end of that spectrum where it's like, I don't think of those as mine at all. I really uh, see them as a service and a mirror in a way. And I used to have kind of like a contentious relationship with that practice, which, uh, yeah. So basically I, from the time I was 21, I would travel with a typewriter in my backpack. I spent like the first four months after college, just like backpacking from country to country uh, with a little table, a little typewriter, a tiny stool, all stuffed into a backpack and would then pop up in whatever city I landed in and strangers could give me a topic, any topic they wanted. And I would write a poem within five minutes on that subject, read it aloud, hand the only existing copy off to them to keep, and folks could just donate what they wanted. In more recent years, I started a company with some friends of mine in the Boston area where we write poems to order at events and weddings and galas and universities in a more sort of formalized way. But the the practice is the same. For a while, when I was younger, I had a difficult connection with this practice because I really was like, you know, I you can't really write like a great poem in five minutes. Like these are really spur of the moment, rough drafts. Like they're nothing that I would publish, for example. But my thinking on that changed actually when I started reading tarot. So I also read tarot and I realized that they're almost the exact same process. They're the exact same thing and kind of have the same purpose where a poem to order is a moment where someone sits down across from you and just feels seen, feels themselves reflected for a moment. And specifically like tarot reflected in a series of archetypes. So I listen, you know, the person reveals something about themselves in 
their moment of requesting their subject and they trust me with something that they care about and you know it it varies how much they care about this particular thing but sometimes people will reveal something really intimate that they may not be talking to other people about and even in frivolous topics like it's something that they're thinking about or interested in and you know it's some glimpse into who they are and so my job as this kind of bespoke poet is to reflect whatever they need to hear not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear back to them using archetypes and storytelling tropes and also like getting into the specific of what they want, but in this kind of more universal language. And so, yeah, so in the end of the day, it's actually not about the poem. It's about connection. It's about allowing someone to feel seen and feel reflected by another human being for just a few moments out of their day. And then to take away this memento that reminds them of that feeling of feeling seen. I love that. And I know you said you might have done this uh, in New Orleans at one point. And, it, you know, a few years, I don't remember the years I was back there, but we, we took a trip down to New Orleans and I saw somebody there with their typewriter and such doing that. And it has obsessed me now to find a typewriter for years to try to, to, to get my hands on just a little mechanical typewriter. So if that was you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it probably wasn't. There's a lot of poems to order going on in New Orleans. There's actually something called The Row, which is this group of poets. I don't know if they're still at it, but they would form like a long row of like 10 or more street poets all the way across Royal Street, which they close off to traffic during the day for buskers. Um, yeah, so it's, it's quite a saturated market, actually, when it comes to poems to order, uh, which is really fun. When I started doing it 10 years ago, I was one of only a few. Uh, I definitely didn't come up with it or anything like I, I'd seen other people writing poems to order. But yeah, now it's like it's a hot item. <laughs> and yeah, I recommend it. It's a blast. Uh, get yourself a typewriter. They're, they're totally findable. Go on eBay. I write on a, a 1952 Hermes rocket because it is super small, super compact, uh, only weighs about six pounds, can fit in a backpack. Though I must say, uh, it is worth noting, I definitely do not write books on a typewriter. To me, that seems absolutely deranged. Like I, it's amazing that all the writers for the last hundred years were doing that because man, what a lot of work, hard on the hands. Can you still find the, the ink for the, the typewriters when it runs out? Yeah, yeah, they still make the universal ribbons. Um, gotcha. So yeah, you can just order them online. Nice. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before that you weave personal history into Thistlefoot. One of my favorite characters is something that you interacted with in real life, which is Winnie. Um, she Winnie. is she's my favorite based off of a gravestone that is in your hometown of Winifred Hadley, who died in November 23rd, 1884. So could you share a little bit about your process of creating Winnie? Yeah. Oh. I'm so glad that people connect with Winnie because she was really hard for me to write. And I also love like how well you guys have done your research. Like I love <laughs> to be snooped on, you know, it's really fun. We love um, to snoop. <laughs> oh yeah. No, there's nothing like a good internet stock of someone you're going to meet in the future. It's always a blast. Um, yeah. So Winnie is kind of my spin on the golem figure where she is a carving, a stone carving of a girl, a life-size stone carving of a girl that is awoken in the course of the book and becomes a character and a love interest uh, of one of the other characters, which is really fun. And 
Uh, she is, yeah, as you said, based on an actual life-size stone carving of a girl in the cemetery right next to my house in Brattleboro. So I spent a lot of time with Winnie as I was drafting this book. In the, in the story, I place her in a cemetery in Baltimore just because at the point in the book that she needed to enter the story, they were already that far south. So I had to place her somewhere else, but she is actually in Brattleboro, Vermont. And the reason she was so hard to write was like, on the one hand, she is a newborn baby, right? She's just been awoken. So everything is new. Everything is fresh and exciting to her. On the other hand, she is a 17-year-old Victorian girl. On the other hand, she is an ancient part of the earth who is full of infinite wisdom. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like, how am I supposed to write a person with all of those attributes? Uh, and so in the first draft, she was like kind of a cardboard cutout where I was like, I'll have to figure this out later and really struggled with her. And by the end, yeah, I hear from a lot of readers that she's the fan favorite, which is I'm so proud of because it really took a while to get there. And there's a story about Winnie that I love to tell that I think you'll really appreciate as, as a Winnie fan. During the editing process, when I was like really trying to find her voice and was struggling with it, I kind of like gave up for the night. I was like hitting a wall and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for a walk in the cemetery. I'm going to go visit Winnie, see if like just, you know, clearing my head on a walk and also visiting her in person maybe can reveal like some ideas to me and uh, jog things loose a little bit. So it's dusk and I'm like wandering through the cemetery as the light fades and I, I reach Winifred's stone. And in the book, her hands are outstretched because uh, it's, she needs to catch someone. <laughs> uh, in real life, she her hands are cupped in her lap. Sometimes people will put things in her hands. There's a man in town who leaves flowers in her hands every day. So she always is holding flowers in her hands. Uh, but this day she wasn't holding flowers. She was holding something else and it was very small and I couldn't quite see what it was. So I climbed up on the pedestal and I leaned up over to see what she was holding. And as someone who's read the book, you're gonna understand why I absolutely lost my dang mind when I saw what she was holding, which is she was holding a flattened nickel pressed on a railroad. It's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> so for those who haven't read the book, well, you can tell, tell them why that's wild. <laughs> well, because there's the train travel with Isaac and Benji. Benji right? yeah. Isaac and Benji. And so they would, you know, flatten the, the coins on their travels. And they always had some with them usually, correct? Yeah. Exactly. So Isaac's, <laughs> Isaac's calling card is he leaves yeah, a train flattened nickel everywhere that he goes. And anytime he steals something, he replaces it with a train flattened nickel. So it's like, if you see a train flattened nickel, it's a sign that Isaac has been there. And there is Winifred holding a train flattened nickel. And I, you know, I was deep in lockdown there. It was like still deep, deep quarantine. So I hadn't seen another, per you know, I was spending way more time with these characters I made up than with real people. And so I, I like literally looked over my shoulder. I was like, is he real? Is he here? Did I make a man alive? Like, and the rest of the evening on my walk, I was like half expecting to bump into this character that I made up. It was so surreal. Because it's not a common object at all. No, I mean, it's common in my circles. Okay. I just, you know, like- <laughs> Not I, in Florida, not here. No, I mean like, <laughs> you know- trains. 
my research for for Isaac and Benji's train hopping was I just called my boyfriend at the time who was a train hopper <laughs> and was like, all right, tell me how I would do this. Uh, but yeah, it was very strange that it was like in her hands and that it had just some that someone else had put this object in her hands. And yeah, it was it was amazing. A little bit of that magic leaking out. As you said at the beginning here, this is kind of based on folklore from Russian folklore, the Baba Yaga story. With that comes certain guidelines, restrictions that that you as a, a writer kind of had to work with without, because I mean, if you, if you stay too close, it's, it's, it's copying. If you go too far, you, you lose kind of that heart of that, that folklore. So how does setting those guidelines or, or creative limits help you to free yourself to, to write more openly? Yeah, I, um, I mean, one of the nice things about working in folklore is like, you can't plagiarize it. Like it's, it's open for interpretation. So there's not, um, there's not the fear of like, oh shoot, this is going to be too similar. But, but yeah, if I just were to copy the story verbatim, like what would be the point in writing it? Because it already exists. So for me, it doesn't feel like a challenge at all. It feels like you said, it actually is, uh, it actually frees me up to work within those constraints. Because like we were talking about earlier, the function of folklore is to serve as this metaphorical parallel kind of for whatever needs to be talked about. And that's what allows folklore to survive as long as it does is because it is, what, whatever it is about the story, it's super adaptable. And that's the only reason it's made it. The stories that are not adaptable, they do not survive. They do not make it into the present because they can't shapeshift with each new teller and they can't adapt to each new metaphor that they need to represent uh, for the time period that they exist in, in each new era. So it actually feels really, really natural and almost easy for me to write from folklore because they are stories that evolved to evolve uh, in a way. What really frees me up about working with folklore too is that I think it's really scary to write about things directly, not just like because of the like painful elements of history or like the potential taboos, but like it feels really naked to write realism for me, um, especially because, you know, with all writers, we're, there's a lot of ourselves in our books. So if I were to have written this in any kind of autobiographical way, it would have been terrifying. Like, you know, I, I'm someone who really, really cares about, you know, I don't want anyone in my life to read something of mine and feel betrayed by it. I don't want anyone else, any strangers to read what I write and feel betrayed by it in any way. So it, it's really important for me to have these veils of the fairy tale to be able to drape over stories in order to protect myself and to protect others as well as just to like make it more fun, you know? Like it's fun to write magic. It's fun to write a fairy tale. It's fun to like swim around in pre-existing folklore and see which of it feels like a mirror to me and which of it doesn't. And then you have that freedom to be like, all right, I'm gonna keep this part and I'm gonna chuck that part. I can just, it's almost like with religion in a way where it's like you can take the parts of a faith that speak to you and that help you. And you can chuck out the parts that feel like they're not serving you. I mean, I know that's not how everyone approaches religion, but like, I don't know, with any kind of belief system or any kind of way of life, you know, you can hold the parts that are meaningful and helpful to you. And you can let the parts that are not serving you go. And it's the same with a folktale. You can, I, I was able to dive into the parts of Baba Yaga's history that really felt like they served the story and spoke to the story. Like the house on Chicken Lakes to me specifically 
is just so wonderful and vital. And as someone who is, as you said, this like traveling bard kind of in the 21st century, I've always been really itinerant. And so the idea of a house that can travel with you is really appealing. Um, so I, I can hold on to that. And then there's other parts of her story that aren't as essential to me. Like she flies around in a mortar and a pestle, which is cool, but wasn't, you know, it, metaphorically, I didn't need it for the story. So I didn't need to keep it. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I really like the freedom to work within those and take what you want almost as talismans and then leave behind what you don't want for someone else to use in another retelling. I am so curious about the line, kill the lantern, raise the ghost, which is a phrase similar, but more poetic than break a leg. So I'm hoping you'll share a little bit more about kill the lantern, raise the ghost. Yeah, I, so that's like their catchphrase, right? It's Isaac and Bellatine's catchphrase. It's a call and response where before any show, but then kind of just before any big moment, they'll call and respond, kill the lantern, raise the ghost. Uh, in the book, it was their parents' uh, equivalent of break a leg. And there's sort of a hint that it may have come from a lullaby that Baba Yaga had sung to her children originally. And I just like, I really love a catchphrase. I just really wanted them to have a catchphrase. I had just read and I'm very much in love with Lee Bardugo's duology, Six, uh, Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom, which has the best call and response catchphrase of like any book I've ever read, which is before this team pulls off a heist. They're this team of like thieves and murderers who pull off heists and they will say, no mourners, no funerals before they go into a dangerous situation. And it's like, you can't beat that. It's just so good. And I had also just binge watched uh, Peaky Blinders and they also have a catchphrase, which is uh, they'll say in the bleak midwinter, which is a line of a poem that they had recited uh, when they were fighting in France in the, in the tunnels in World War I. So I was just like, man, catchphrases are cool. I want a catchphrase. And so I decided to make one. I have a journal where I just was like listing catchphrase ideas. And I did research too in, into different cultural equivalents of break a leg. And there's some really cool ones out there. There's an Italian one that's like something like uh, into the wolf's mouth. There's, yeah, there's just, there's some really good ones, uh, but I wanted to invent a new one. And in theater, my favorite moment the, I feel like the most po potent moment in any theater production is in the second before the show starts. And I feel like in movie theaters, I feel this too sometimes where the lights dim, but the show has not yet begun. And there's this moment of held breath, this moment of suspension where suddenly anything could happen. Anything is possible. And you know that something is about to happen to you. And you can feel it in the room, this collective anticipation in the darkness. And so that's where Kill the Lantern, Raise the Ghost came out of, is Kill the Lantern is that moment of the lights go out and it is what allows this, you know, this spirit, this ghost, this magic, this like other world to leak into our world. So I, I feel like I didn't, I never found the catchphrase where I was like, yes, this is the one I want. But Kill the Lantern, Raise the Ghost, I was like, you know what? This is what Isaac and Bellatine want, even if it might not be my catchphrase. So I've got, grown very fond of it. And what I'm really excited about, I don't know if this is a secret or not. Maybe it's, maybe I'm like breaking a rule and my publicist is going to yell at me. I have a panel at New York Comic Con in a couple of weeks, which I'm so, so, so excited about. I can't wait to see like everybody's little outfits. But I, 
Uh, I've been told that for my signings, I have two signings and panel. Penguin is actually making Kill the Lantern, Raise the Ghost temporary tattoos and pins. Uh, so if you're going to Comic-Con, please come find me and get some sick swag. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't wait to slap a Kill the Lantern, Raise the Ghost temp tat on myself. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. It's something that if someone hears that line, they're going to think the sulfite. Isn't that, yeah. <laughs> See, I'm really, I, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but something that I really love and have like tried to cultivate is in any story or TV show or book that earns like cult followings, you find that they have these little signatures. You have, they have these things where you can take them out of their context and people know exactly what they come from. So like in Stranger Things, for example, if you see uh, Christmas lights strung over a set of letters or like Eggo waffles. Like, you know what story that comes from. In, you know, like mine is Buffy. I'm a huge Buffy fan. And there's like specific, there's like Mr. Pointy is a steak that is shaped a very specific way. And if you see that steak, you know what story that comes from. And I think this is a really great cheat code for storytellers and for writers. What it does is it allows the reader or the viewer to feel like they're on the inside of a secret. They're on the inside of like a secret code that only their fandom speaks. And so when they see it in the wild, it's this little beacon to connect you to the story and to the other fans of the story. So I love integrating those things into my work because I, as someone who's like a fan of things, love that feeling of recognizing those little iconographies. Um, so yeah, so for me, Kill the Lantern, Raise the Ghost was one of my ways of like inventing some of those little icons to hide in Thistlefoot that then readers of it could hold on to and kind of feel some ownership over. Kind of touched on how folklore over time changes and adapts to, to the cultures that are in and how sometimes the endings of them will, will change depending on where it is. Uh, you being a, a fan of those kind of stories, I think I, I'm gathering that you too might hate certain having definitive endings when there's the, the, the multiverse of, of options that are out there to kind of go in any kind of direction. So having that kind of feeling going into it, how does that affect you as a writer who has to have a somewhat definitive ending to put, put to, to, for the readers? Yeah, I, um, so when I started Thistlefoot, I knew exactly how it was going to end. That was the first thing that I knew. Um, and usually when I start a piece, I know exactly how it's going to end. Because for me, it's less about like, I need a definitive ending. Because I think that there's plenty of stories that do not have a definitive ending, and that's just fine. But for me, the reason I need to know how something ends is because I need to know what emotion I'm working toward. So mm -hmm. this is how, like, if I'm stuck in a story, what I'll do is I will say, okay, first step is how do I want the reader to feel when they, in the moments after they finish the story? What do I want the reader to feel when they walk away? And then once I know how I want them to feel, I think, okay, what action, what ending would allow them to feel that way? And then when I know that, when I'm like, okay, the story has to end in this way in order for that feeling to be evoked, I can work backwards again and say, then what actions will need to happen in what order, in order for that event to happen, in order for that feeling to happen. So that's the way that I plot. But that said, uh, you know, 
If you've read Thistlefoot and if you've also read The Lumberjack's Dove, you'll notice that there's certain similarities in that both, both of these tell the same story a number of different ways. Uh, in The Lumberjack's Dove, there's two different versions of the same story that are being woven throughout. In Thistlefoot, the house itself tells its own birth story, its own origin story in four or five different ways. And you never know, uh, you know which one's real. And part of that is kind of an homage to that shifting folklore, but part of it quite honestly is like me like cheating. It's me not having to choose just one where I'm like, well, but there's so many good options. Why would I choose one when I can choose more than one? And also like, who am I to know which one is best? So I'll just put them all in there. <laughs> I won't choose. And you know, I'm like that with everything. Like I'm terrible at restaurants. Ordering off a menu for me is a disaster. It takes me forever. Cause I'm like, oh my gosh how am I supposed to choose when there's like so many good options? Uh, and I, I kind of let that same, <laughs> that same weakness leak into my writing but then I kind of use it as a tool and as a strength. Yeah, I'm lucky I write folklore based stuff because it kind of fits with the genre <laughs> to not ever have to make a choice. But but then at the end of the day, yeah, when I reach the actual end, it does usually conclude in a solid way. But in the meantime, I can kind of have some fun and wiggle around and tell some different versions of the tale. And this will fit while it is a fairy tale, it's also a ghost story. So what is it about writing in dark and haunting style that you enjoy most? Oh yeah, I love spooky stuff. There's so many things I love about it. It's interesting because I was a really, really scared little kid. Like I was scared of everything. And I still like, I, I have a hard time with like horror horror just because I get genuinely very frightened and it doesn't fade as quickly as I might like it to fade. Like I like the stories, but they just like mess me up. But I love the figures within those kinds of stories. I love monsters. I love ghosts. Part of it, I think, does come from being like a diehard Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan since I was 11 years old. Um, but I also feel like I probably gravitated toward that because I love those sorts of figures. And with ghosts specifically, I just feel like they're the perfect figure to talk about all the things I love to talk about. They are these manifestations of memory, this, these manifestations of longing. Uh, I love that you asked this question because today, after this interview, I'm actually going to be writing a piece for LitHub about ghosts, uh, which I'm really excited to dive into. I always think of ghosts less as like literally the dead rising and being like less literally like the ghost of a person who has died and is now present and more as kind of what I said, the, a manifestation of longing. It is something that is absent and the gap is so strong, the absence is so strong that it actually becomes bodied in some way. And I think we can all understand that feeling. You know, I think that a ghost can be not just the dead, but anything that is absent. You know, anyone who's been heartbroken knows how bodied and how physical that absence can feel. Anyone who has lost someone to death knows how bodied and, and, and real and present that absence feels. And so writing ghosts allows me to write absence in a physical and solid way. Uh, and it's also fun and weird. And I love things that are fun and weird. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> no? <laughs> uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think it's like, 
really exciting anytime someone comes up with like a new spin on what a ghost can look like. I think like Lincoln and the Bardo, I think by uh, George Saunders mm. was a great example of a ghost story that felt new and fresh. Kelly Link, who's my favorite author, is always reinventing what a ghost can be. And it's so exciting. Uh, and somehow over and over again, she's able to write a story where it's like a completely new kind of ghost that you've never seen before. And you're like, whoa, I didn't know a ghost could do that. Um, and that's the thing too, that's so cool about ghosts is they can be whatever you need them to be. As long as they are tied into that feeling of, of tugging, of this like uncanny chafing between presence and absence, uh, they can be whatever you want. And that's really exciting. We have a game here that we like to play and we've already broken the rules a little bit here, but Sarah gets on me if I don't say this the way we say it here. You might know it as a different game, but we call it Kiss Mary Ditch. Uh-huh. Oh, a classic game. Love it. <laughs> um, so I've got three categories here that I'm going to give witty kind of titles to. You can then, you will then pick that category and inside there, I will give you three choices that you either like, love, and get rid of. Awesome. So your, your categories to choose from are give me a steak, medium rare, bitingly funny, and Rudolph has nothing on them. Wait, what is the category? <laughs> yeah, yeah the, 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 no, those are, those are the they categories. Just, they just exist in their independent uh, entities. Yeah, so right. you choose one of those three and wow. then I will give you the three things you have to choose from from there. Oh, those are the categories. Okay, give yes, me a steak, yes. medium rare. Uh, what was the bitingly, second? Bitingly funny and Rudolph has nothing on them. Okay, um, let's do, give me a steak, medium rare. As you may have mentioned earlier, you are a Buffy fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I am going to give you three Buffy episodes. You have to <gasps> are you serious? I am. Oh my like God, I guessed the Buffy one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. So you have to choose like, love, and get rid of, of out of these three episodes. Hush, Once More with Feeling, and The Body. Oh, that's so hard. I, you oh know, my I, God. A little internet stalking goes a long way. Oh no. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. I can't get rid of it. Those are the three best episodes. Mm. Wow. Okay. Oh geez. Okay. Well, I would say whatever, I would say I would marry whatever the equivalent to that. I forget what you replaced the actual categories with it's in this case. Mary Kiss and Ditch. Mary Kiss, okay, Kiss. That's what I have to remember. <laughs> um, all right, I would marry, oh my God, you know what? what? Oh no, I'm so sorry. I, like, I, I feel like viscerally opposed to ditching any of these. Um, but for, I guess, the purposes of this game, <laughs> I would marry once more with feeling. I just can't, I just love it so much. I know every word to every song. I just, I think it's wonderful. And I love musicals too. I'm like a big musical theater person. So it's like, this to me is like, I want to live in the world of Once More With Feeling. Um, so like Mary Once More With Feeling, I feel like it'd be like kind of messed up to have any kind of uh, erotic connection with the body. So I'm going to kiss uh, Hush. I feel like the gentleman would be a good time. <laughs> and uh, which means I will have to kill uh, the body, but not out of any lack of deep, deep appreciation for what is honestly like the most 
beautiful and powerful representation of grief and death that I think has ever been on television. It's kind of apropos that that's the one that dies. Yeah, yeah, it's fitting. You know, as as Anya says, like, it was here, or she was here, and now she's not, and it doesn't make any sense. And that's how I feel about having to kill the episode of the body. <laughs> um, just to give you the the, uh, the reveal here, uh, Rudolph has nothing on them. I would have made you choose between some clowns. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, bitingly funny. You would have had to choose, uh, ranked uh, three of the characters from one of my favorite shows, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, can we do that too? <laughs> oh, okay. So you, we're, we're, Colin is not factoring into this because, you know, okay. that's an easy ditch. Yeah, sure. Oh, poor Colin. <laughs> <laughs> and I, lo I love it, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Laszlo, Nandor, or Nadja? Okay, this is easy. I would marry Nadja. Um, I just, she's incredible. She's, I love how she's just so deranged and like no apologies. Um, Laszlo, I would kiss. Like, Laszlo is a practiced and expert lover, and I think we all know that about him. And then, uh, yeah, Nandor, whatever. He's just a sad sack. He can go. To semi-quote him, effing this woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just binged all of it, actually, like, two months ago. And it's so good. It's so good. Any chance yeah. I get to talk about that show with anybody, I am on it. Like, it is... Like yeah, Laszlo in, in anything. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I really, I find uh, Nadja to be like a real personal inspiration. Like I would like to live a little more like her. I also really appreciate Laszlo specifically for the fact that he's like a total sex freak, but like very good. Like he's, he's a non-toxic sexual person. And I think that's a really, really important a character in television, especially as like a male character, to, to be able to show like healthy and respectful ways to embody that that kind of person is, I just, I really, really appreciate him. He's perverted, but not a pervert. Yeah, totally. And he's like, he respects women. He respects people. He's like, yeah, I think he's really great. <laughs> he communicates in like healthy ways. You know, I mean, they're all murderers, but that's neither here nor there. And we are a library podcast. So how have libraries impacted your life? Oh, I love libraries. They're amazing. Uh, well, how have they impact? Oh, actually, I have a huge way that libraries have impacted my life, which I guarantee is different than the way they impacted anyone else's lives. So, um, you know, in addition to all the normal ways libraries have impacted me in like, you know, I grew up being going to the library, reading books, la la la, you know, libraries have books in them. We know that about them. Um, what we don't know is how many clowns libraries have in that. So when I was a child, uh, which would have been revealed if I had chosen the Rudolph has nothing on them category, is that uh, as a child, I was a professional touring clown child. Now, to be specific, this is not child clown, child or clown for children. I was a child who was a clown. My father used to be a clown and he raised my brother and I up to be clowns. Uh, I like to joke about this, though it's really just a straight, straight up fact, which is that my father is a clown and my mother is a therapist. Uh, that's just real, that's just the life I live. So my, yeah, my, my dad, my brother and I would go on the road every summer 
with our family's traveling clown act. <laughs> and specifically, we toured two libraries. Every summer, the Vermont libraries would have a summer reading theme that would be what they would center a lot of their children's programming around. And what we would do every year is we would write a new like hour, hour and a half long clown show based on that summer reading theme. And then my dad would call all the libraries in the state and would book us gigs at all the libraries. So my summer jobs as a child is would be driving all around Vermont with my dad and my brother from library to library to library, uh, performing this clown show and meeting librarians and meeting readers. And yeah, so libraries have a huge role in, in my youth in that they were the spaces that I grew up in and that I traveled and that I got my start as a performer in, uh, which obviously has impacted me now to this day. We still do our summer reading themes and oh, select, right. <laughs> what select was this our year's? performers. The Oceans of Possibilities was the last one. Nice. And I'm trying to think of next year's. It's like, um, all together now or something. Like, it's it's not as exciting. It's cheesy. It's cheesier. Yeah, it's more nebulous and like, oh, all right, yay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're hit or miss. <laughs> the, the two big summers that we toured, the themes were uh, fantastic feasts, I think. It was like, it was a food-based one. So mm -hmm. we had all these like food-centric skits. Um, the, the most famous, like me and my dad's signature bit that we've been doing since I was like three years old, we got to put into this theme, which is that we call it the bubblegum skit. And it, the, the plot is I'm a little, a little lady chewing a big wad of bubblegum. And my dad's like, spit out that gum right now. And he puts out his hand and I spit the gum into his hand. And then through some sort of slapstick arrangement, he accidentally like pats me on the back. And then we get stuck together and the rest of the skit is just us getting stuck and unstuck to this gum in various uh, twistery ways. <laughs> so, yeah. So sweet. <laughs> I know. And then the other year that we toured like the whole summer was uh, pets. So we'd had a lot of animal themed skits. <laughs> um, we had a Tales and Tales one, which was all animals. And those are always the best when you can throw animals in there. <laughs> oh yeah, you can do some Aesop's fables. You can, there's mm -hmm. a lot of opportunities. Cool. I think this one is, is supposed to be kindness, friendship, and unity. So it's going to be community oh, yeah, building, which is, has a healthy theme. <laughs> <laughs> um, so since how we're talking clowns. Yes. What goes into being a clown and how do you, uh, you know, from a, from a non-clown perspective, I know, you know, you, you kind of, there, there's certain, feelings and, and stereotypes and fears that go along with seeing clowns at times. So how does that, from, from the other side of the perspective, how, how, what, how's that reacted to? I, first off, I love the phrase, quote, from a non-clown perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I just really, I just want to take a moment to appreciate that. Um, so I will preface by saying like, my family has no formal clown training. Like you, you know, I have a number of friends who are clowns who like went to clown college and who like work in circuses and who like really formally trained in these traditional contexts. Um, that's my dad just decided he was gonna be a clown and then he was a clown. And you know, he, I mean, my dad's a, an amazing self-educator. 
He is a, he's an author and a playwright and a poet and a clown and a performer. And, you know, he, he never went to college. He like fully self-educated himself in depth as this incredibly like literate nuanced thinker. And uh, so he wasn't just like, I'm a clown, here's a balloon animal. Like we are not balloon animal clowns. That is not our realm. It's much more in the tradition of like comedy dell'art or like the Poirot clowns and clowning as a means of kind of being a satire and a mirror of society. Clowns as like hyperbole essentially. So, you know, I think when the, the clowns that people get freaked out by are like the party clown kind of clown, which it's this kind of like seediness inside of what's supposed to be whimsical. I never quite understood the clown horror stuff, but also, you know, I think a lot of it is like this culturally created, like you've got Stephen King's It, which like terrified generations of people. And, you know, the clown has been pushed into this area of monstrosity in a way. And it makes sense that it would because there are similar, uh, there's some overlap between clown and monster in that both of them are these bloated hyperbolic representations of things that we might have in the world where, you know, a werewolf is this like bloated representation, this hyperbolic representation of, of animals that actually exist. Clowns are all about hyperbole too, in that clowning at its heart, I think, is taking actual human emotion and experience, turning up the volume knob and you know, just being able to be as out there as your emotions might want without tamping anything down to fit the rules of society. So, you know, in our culture, we spend a lot of time kind of monitoring and softening our feelings and the ways that we behave our feelings in order to do what's, what seems appropriate. Uh, clowns don't do that. Clowns, if they feel sad, they start bawling. Clowns, if they're excited, they leap in the air. Clowns allow their feelings to manifest as fully as they are felt. And so I think that that's kind of the basis of them is they're our truest selves in a way. And to me, I think that's why I love them. And I think that's that's also the, the heart of magical realism, right? That's the heart of folklore as well is that it's this genre that allows us to take how it feels to be a person and turn the volume up and manifest it and make it like fill physical space um, in the same way that a ghost is this physical embodiment of a longing that we feel a clown allows you to then embody the things that you feel in this fully uh, out there way that isn't tamped down at all. So that's my clown philosophy. <laughs> I greatly appreciated it. It makes me think of clowns in a different way. Yeah, they, they kind of allow us a bit of freedom, I think, mm -hmm. is, you know, they, and they're, they also poke fun at the world. They remind us that like everything is a joke. Life is a joke because of its sorrows and because of its, its temporality. And, you know, that like, why not, why not acknowledge the fact that none of us know anything and that that's very silly. And then to switch gears just a little bit, um, I'm a fan of ballads and I play the mountain dulcimer, which is often, you know, has the oral tradition with the Scotch Irish English ballads that are captured in the Appalachian mountains. Love a good murder ballad. Can you share a little bit about your modern ballads and do you have any favorite traditional ballads that you enjoy? 
Yeah, thank you so much for asking about that project because it's a few years back now and I'm still really fond of it. Uh, so Modern Ballads was an album that I recorded where I wrote a series of ballads based on kind of the forms and tropes of traditional ballads, but they were my own invented new ones. And I then partnered with a different band or singer songwriter for each ballad. And because I cannot perform them well enough to do them justice. So I, yeah, I, I basically partnered with all of these different musicians. And then I rented out, you know, studio space and I recorded them each playing a rendition of that ballad. So I wrote the lyrics, they wrote the melodies and the music and then performed them. And then we released them onto an album with all of these compiled in this sort of anthology set. And it was really fun. It was one of the things that very much tickles me about this album is like, it's kind of a who's who of my exes. Like I got all these people I dated to like come in and like record a song for me, which I thought was just like very funny. And uh, <laughs> it was really a project I'd wanted to do for a long time because I too, I just love, I love a good ballad. I think they're so fascinating. And I had come back a couple of years prior to making that project from studying at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where I was studying, yeah, it was amazing. I was studying specifically supernatural Scottish folklore in their School of Scottish Studies department. And so I was studying a lot of traditional Scottish ballads, the child ballads and others, and really, really wanted to make my own. And I also had become obsessed with this particular album, which to segue into your question of my favorites, there's an album of uh, a few of the child ballads. The child ballads, uh, for those who don't know, they're not ballads for children. They're ballads that were collected by a man whose last name is Child, um, who was a Harvard man who went and collected all of these Scottish and English ballads into these like multiple volume set uh, extravaganzas. So uh, there's an album by Anais Mitchell and Jefferson Hamer which is called Child Ballads. And they selected a few of these and recorded new versions of them. And they're just so beautiful. My favorite one on that album, though I love all of them, is a Tam Lin. Tam Lin is a gorgeous, gorgeous fairy ballad about a woman who wanders down into this kind of forbidden garden and sees a fairy man there. And the two of them sleep together. And then she leaves and realizes that she's pregnant. And she's like, crap, now I have to be pregnant with a fairy, this sucks. And she goes down back to the garden again and she starts to pick these like abortive herbs to rid herself of this fairy. And Tamlin the fairy pops up and he's like, what are you doing? You're gonna get rid of my baby? I don't think so. And she's like, I mean, you're a fairy so this really doesn't seem super tenable. And he says, actually, I'm not a fairy, I'm a prince, but I've been like, you know, enslaved by the fairy queen. And if you stay with me, I'm going to shapeshift into all of these horrible, horrible beasts. But you have to hold me close to you while this happens. And I'm going to become a swan and peck at you. And I'm going to become a lion and tear at you. And I'm going to become a hot rod of iron and burn you. But you still have to hold me. And if you can do it through all that, I will be freed from this curse and I will marry you and will raise his child. And she does. And they do. Uh, and I just, I, yeah, I love this ballad. I think it's so strange. I, I think it's a really interesting parallel to like loving someone with an addiction, this, or, or with like mental health issues, you know, this process of holding someone even 
in these moments where they become these sort of monstrous in certain ways, but holding them close despite it all and loving them through it all. Yeah, so Tamlin, great ballad. Uh, Aeneas and Jefferson's version, absolutely beautiful. Check out the Child Ballads album. And I was really excited because I actually was able to get Jefferson to record one of the ballads on the Modern Ballads album. So it was very much this like full circle thing. Uh, yeah, and actually the ballad that he records also shows up in the Lumberjacks dove. So yeah, so it's all connected. (laughs) I love it. Well, and I'm definitely going to check out the song too, because that's one I haven't heard yet. So I'm looking forward. Awesome. Yeah. Love a good ballad. As, as this is one that we love asking here. So strangest thing in your search history. Oh, Jesus. Um, I feel like anytime you're like researching for a book, you've got to like, you show up on some government lists, you know? Um, government doesn't I, care. Yeah, there you got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> I, um, I, I actually started taking screenshots at a certain point in my research process of just like the most absurd things that I had been researching. And I really forget what any of them are now. I, they've completely blocked out, but, oh, I, you know, I was researching like, you know, what kind of wood are chairs made of in like rural 1910s Russia? And just like these, these super specific, there's no reason anyone would Google these things. And I certainly did not find an answer through Googling, but it's that, I guess that's not a super weird one, but it's very right. niche. It, it, but it's fun. And yeah, I mean, totally. Really the heart of this question is we, we try to get a sneak peek of what's coming on the horizon and giving me rabbit oh, okay. holes to fall down. Yeah. All right. So in terms of some recent stuff, well, all right, here's actually where my real search history gets a little wiggity whack is uh, in addition to being a writer of my own work, I also am an associate producer of the podcast Lore and I research about half of the Lore episodes. So, you know, for those who've heard this podcast, it's You'll know it's it's a spooky, weird, macabre podcast that delves into both supernatural folklore as well as like grim history. And so, yeah, my research history, my search history is like, you know, most violent hot air balloon accident in France. And, you know, um, like, how did the Vikings keep their dead from rising from the grave? And that sort of delightful content. So those are the things that are really going to start getting me on some government lists because a number of these two are like, you know, in what year did blah, 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 uh, murder a child and use its skull in a love spell? And so, you know, I I spend a lot of time researching like children's skulls in love spells, (laughs) which I uh, do not recommend uh, doing that. (laughs) Both researching and uh, as a practitioner. You can't tell me not to research nothing. I'm down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Researching it is fine. Uh, just maybe like don't take a child's skull and use it in a love spell. It's like not super cool to do that. <laughs> That'd be yeah. so cool to have your job as at the researcher for lore. That would be super cool. It's really amazing. And like the way it works is every week I have a new subject and I then we'll write a 15 page research outline with full bibliography on that like super niche folklore topic. So, um, you know, the listeners won't be able to see this, but you guys, I'm tilting my camera right now and you can see this is my like folklore books library. Oh, cool. So 
I have all these books. And one of the big perks of the lore job is like, I can ask for a book and they'll like buy it and mail it to me. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So I have like a big stack of books on American urban legends coming my way in the mail right now that I'm really excited to dive into. Yeah. All the things librarians love, research, citations, books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I've become like very unbearable at parties now because all I am, my whole personality is just cursed information. Like. (laughs) That's it. I guess my last question for you is what are you currently reading slash watching? Yeah, I am reading. Okay, let's, I'm re- I got a big stack of books uh, over the past week. And so I'm, I've been reading uh, Tender by Sophia Samatar, which is an incredible short story collection. I am also reading Wonderling by Mira Bartok, which is this really, really sweet, beautiful, like children's, almost like Dickensian fairy tale. And I've been reading a little bit before bed every night, which is really nice. What I'm about to start reading that I'm really excited about is, oh my gosh, what's it called? It's a, it's a book where the, I think it was written in the seventies maybe. And it had, it, it has 31 chapters and one chapter for each day of October and it's a Halloween story and I don't oh my gosh I wish I could remember the name it's called like I'm not gonna google it it'll take too much time but uh yeah so basically it's this it's this Halloween story where on the first I'm gonna start reading a chapter a night of this of this Halloween of this Halloween mystery story and what have I been watching I I just finished watching oh I just watched Practical Magic for the first time the other night it's wow what a wild ride I have no idea what just happened to me <laughs> like have, have you read the books yet no by Alice Hoffman there's a whole series so all of like the Owens sisters and the family there's one with Maria Owens back in the 1600s um, but yeah Practical Magic I have a t-shirt that says Midnight Margaritas on it because oh my God. <laughs> it's so cute <laughs> but it, yeah. it is a wild story the pacing of that film was fascinating it was just like things just happened mm-hmm. like there, like no build-up just happened they just would happen <laughs> I, also just like the number of genres crammed into one film is it, honestly uh incredible <laughs> and I have to rewatch. It's been a while. <laughs> I think like, I've read the books more recently than the film. I feel like the books probably make more sense pacing wise and genre wise. Like the movie is like one moment it's a rom-com and then suddenly it's like Thelma and Louise. And then suddenly there's like a, like a horror element, but then mm-hmm. suddenly you're back to murder. And then all of a sudden there's like someone's kissing someone and you're just like, what? Whiplash <laughs> like back and forth. And yeah, then they're drinking margaritas, but like- but then there's like a dead man buried in the yard. Like there's so much going on. <laughs> and just because we're librarians and this is what we do, the, uh, the, the, the book you were talking is called A Night in Lonesome October. Yes. Thank you. Amazing. Man, librarians, you, you got superpowers. <laughs> so to wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I would love to see any of you out in person. Um, Thistlefoot has been out as of the recording of this podcast. I don't know when it's going to air, but as of the moment we're talking, it's been out for two weeks, uh, two weeks today. And I'm really proud of it and really excited about it. And I hope you all like it. And I would love to meet you in person, whether you've read it yet or not. Take a look at my website, check out where I'm going to be touring and uh, 
yeah, there, I uh, will warn you, there will be puppets. There will be puppets and they will have a thing or two to say uh, to you. So, <laughs> yeah. It was a beautifully written book. I so enjoyed it. I didn't want to leave it. So thank you for writing it and sharing your story with us. Thank you both so much for having me. It was really fun talking to you both. Yes, thank you. And yay for librarians, America's heroes. Thank you so much, Jenna Rose, for joining us on Unstacked. Thistlefoot is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendor. Check out her website, jennaroesenethercott.com. That is G-E-N-N-A-R-O-S-E-N-E-T-H-E-R-C-O-T-T.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.